This is episode 85 of the Landscape Photography Show, and before we get into the podcast, I want to send a special thank you to patron Bree Stockwell. Bree's actually been on the podcast before, so if you want to listen to her thoughts on photography and her journey in photography, you can go back and listen to that episode, but I want to spend a special thank you to Bree and her support of the podcast. If you want to be a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston, and you can get special benefits for being a patron to specific tiers, exclusive audio to continuing episodes of the podcast, and also things like webinars and other benefits that you can get too. Today in the podcast, we're hearing from Colleen Minnick. And Colleen and I jumped on a call after we actually just randomly popped up in a room and out of Chicago Live one day, and I sent her an invite. I was really excited to talk to Colleen, and, and it turned out that my excitement was matched during our discussion because she shares a treasure trove of information, approaches to photography that I think a lot of you can start implementing into your photography, especially if you find yourself in a rut or wanting to try new techniques. Maybe you want to challenge yourself even further. So I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode because just listening back to it, when I was posting it on my website, I was astonished at how much I missed while I was just recording the podcast. I may actually go back and listen to this one one more time. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Colleen Minnick, and Colleen is somebody who I actually have been familiar with for quite some time now. However, we had never talked until we randomly popped up in the same chat room in the Out of Chicago live one morning, uh, and I thought, why have I not gotten Colleen on. What's my problem? So Colleen, welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, David. I'm uh, very excited to be a part of this. I'm glad to connect as well. It was really fun to, to see you at out of Chicago after all of these years. <laughs> How about we start off, if anybody is unfamiliar with you and your backstory, Give us a, a clue into how you began in photography and, and what led you to the point you are right now. Yeah, it's. I never intended to become an outdoor photographer, certainly not a freelance one, um, full-time freelance. So I grew up in Ohio, Arkansas, Illinois. Uh, I went to school out in California at Stanford and then graduated from the University of Michigan. And I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I had a lot, a lot of different interests, none of them related to visual art or any art of any sort. So, um, I mean, I dabbled in music. I attempted to take a drawing class in eighth grade. That didn't go so well. Um, so it really didn't have an artistic background. I did a lot with athletics. Um, but I was graduating through school. I was going through school at like the height of the tech boom. And really, when I was growing up, all I really wanted to be was rich and happy. And so <laughs> um, I graduated with a business administration degree in computer information systems and ended up taking a job with Intel Corporation, which is how I moved out to where I live now, uh, out in Phoenix, Arizona suburbs. And so after about five years of being at Intel, I just got really stressed out. I was starting to have health problems that in hindsight were all related to stress. And my mom recognized this and she handed me a brochure to the local community college and she said, I think you need to get a life, Colleen. And it was <laughs> it was for a photography class. And I had never picked up a camera unless you count the ones you buy at a drugstore right before you go on vacation. And so, you know, I walked into that class and it was like, it was black and white traditional development. It was super chill on Saturdays. It was adults and it was more like a club, um, very supportive, a great learning environment. And I really knew from the first day that I went in there and they were talking about apertures and depth of field and ISO. And I was like, I don't know any of this. This sounds fun. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely like sort of that methodical analytical science background kicked in for me. And so I was hooked from the first day and it took um, 
I think it was maybe in my third or fourth semester. I ended up taking five semesters, not the same, not the same semesters. <laughs> um, but I ended up seeing one of my um, classmates, one of my friends brought a magazine in with her photograph in it. And I like, I know this sounds ridiculous, but it had never occurred to me that magazines bought photographs. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I like... I wonder if I could do that. And so I started selling my work, which was probably tragically horrible, in 2003 at art shows locally um, here. And I, I did, ended up doing really well. I mean, I had like 15 pictures on the wall, but I ended up doing really well. And then in 2006, I got um, published with Arizona Highways, which was the first magazine I attempted to get published with. And that was that was a magnificent thing. And just you know, things just started to snowball. It was <laughs> like things tend to do in my life. Um, so around 2007, um, I decided that I wanted to do it full time. I had I had tried for two years, um, basically holding down two full time jobs with the photography business and Intel work as a software engineer, um, and it just got to be too much. And um, I really was struggling mentally at Intel. It was definitely not my path. Um, I like to say that I'm just not a cage bird. I just did not belong in the gray cubicle walls. And so um, in 2007, uh, February 28th, 2007, I walked out of Intel. I consider it my personal independence day and I've celebrated 14, 14 years of freedom so far. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> and now of course, you know, it's a long story and we probably can get into some of it, but the photography has turned into writing and books and blogs and, and just a whole big world of creative expression that I never could have imagined, um, especially growing up. And so um, it's it's been a challenge. It's been exciting. It's been fun. I can't imagine life being any other way right now. You mentioned stressors at your previous job. I mean, despite photography, which we all know can be a creative outlet in its own right, how have you de-stressed, kind of taken a deep breath since that point, your personal Independence Day? Well, I certainly don't have the same level of stress <laughs> that mm. I had at Intel. I mean, you know, you're trying to put a, a you know, a square through a round hole, Um when I was at Intel, it just, I didn't fit. And so I don't, I don't experience the same level of stress now that I'm out in the outdoors. I still go to the out, outdoors, obviously, um, for peace and solitude and, ref, you know, refreshment and recovery and all of that. Um, but that's not my, I don't see it as an escape anymore. Um, I used to see it like the outdoors. That used to be my escape. In fact, I didn't even know much about nature or the outdoors until like right around 1997 when I first slept in a tent in the wild. And so I think my relationship with the outdoors has changed over time. Um, nature is sort of my reality. That's where I feel most at home. And so I end up having more. I end up having to do a little bit of re-entry, like self-care <laughs> when I mm. come back to the manufactured world. Um, I just feel much more at home out there than I do here. Self-care in terms of what? Well, just knowing like in terms of, um, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, it's just um, trying to really get a handle on the stresses of the manufactured world. A lot mm. of what we see in the manufactured world, um, I, I like to call it as meaningless minutia. I mean, some mm. of it is not, um, but a lot of what we stress about, you know, the outdoors doesn't care. Like the cliffs don't care what you do. They don't care what you look like. They don't care how much money you make. The water doesn't care. The ravens don't care. And so, a lot of coming back into the manufactured world is managing expectations, both personal and societal expectations, um, you know, goals and achievement and all of that. None of that matters out there in, in what I call the real world, the outdoors. And so it's just managing, managing your attitude with that and, and just approaching it with, you know, curiosity instead of judgment, I think helps quite a bit when I get back into the manufactured world. Has that that time to decompress like that, does it give you a sense of freedom in a way? Oh, gosh, yes. Of course. 
yeah, yeah. And freedom, <laughs> I've, you know, it's, I've clawed my way to it um, through a variety of difficult situations, life situations, but, um, you know, feeling freedom, being able to make your own decisions, not being concerned what other people think. Those are all things I had to learn. I'm a recovering perfectionist. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, growing up being a people pleaser and trying to, to achieve to be successful and find that happiness. Um, and for me now, it's just definitely not that, um, you know, and that is the purest sense of freedom is when you can direct the course of your own life um, and feel confident in it, knowing that, you know, you won't know it all, knowing that you're going to screw it up, knowing <laughs> and that's part of the fun is learning and discovering, um, you know, kind of as the path reveals itself. Um, so I've had to, I've had to change my attitude a, a lot over the last few years. Why do you think you didn't have that connection before you mentioned having no connection to nature or understanding it really until 1997? Why was that? Yeah. So um, the funny thing is in, is in hindsight, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Like I said, I was born in Ohio, but I moved 10 weeks later and Little Rock, Arkansas, we lived um, in a, on a grassy area with a creek running through my backyard. We had forests in the back and my happiest childhood memories are in my backyard. Like I loved being out there. I loved, you know, picking up the frogs. I loved climbing trees. And I think as, you know, you go through school, the societal pressures to achieve academically, I ended up, you know, getting really involved with sports. I was a, an elite gymnast um, until I grew to six foot tall <laughs> until I was 12. Um, and so that took up a lot of time. Um, you know, I was spending four to six hours in a gym, you know, four or five days a week trying to, to be, you know, the best gymnast that I could be, for example. And then once I grew, I switched that. I just switched it, right? I just switched it to swimming and track and cheerleading. And um, eventually it ended up going to volleyball, which was a good use of my, <laughs> my height. Hmm. Um, but it just, you know, and then academics on top of that, you know, getting, getting the 5.0 on the 5.0 scale and, you know, making sure you were a national honor society. And so for me, I think I was drawn away from the outdoors simply because I was on the path to achievement and success. I mean, that's, you know, and I say that, you know, sort of sarcastically, like I thought that, if I just kept achieving one day, I'd see success one day, I'd see happiness. And I've got there. And by any, you know, by anyone's definition, I got there with Intel, I got there with the six figure salary, I got there with, you know, the husband, the big house, the fancy Mercedes car in my garage. And when I got there, it was like, none of this makes me happy. <laughs> like, I'm actually really miserable. And so when I started getting back into the outdoors, I started to feel like a kid again. I mean, I feel like I, I've reconnected with my youth, my childhood, and all of those things that made me happy now. I mean, I love playing in rivers, and I love splashing, and I love climbing on rocks now. And um, so it's, I feel like it's, I just got pulled away from societal, from from nature because of the expectations, both personal and societal. Let me just run through, since we're talking about working for successes a little bit. Yeah, since, sure. since 2007, you've become a full-time photographer. You have publications in Nat Geo calendars, Arizona highways, national parks, traveler, just, just to name a few, three published guidebooks. You're working on a memoir, <laughs> uh, three artist residencies at Acadia National Park. You begin doing workshops. You're doing women-only workshops. You're a contributor for uh, Nature Photographers Network. You have the Dear Bubbles column. <laughs> uh, not only that, you're Secretary of Board of Directors for Outdoor Writers Association for America. And I've heard rumblings that you paddle boarded a section of the Colorado River, I think 47 miles possibly. Um, oh, a number of times I've paddled the <laughs> A lot of miles on that river. Yes, I just finished a 47-mile solo last and, week. Yeah. And your Wolverines have gone 1-12 against the Ohio Oh, State you had to bring the football in. Oh, my God. I did. Oh, my goodness. You had to go there. It's all I sounded did. great until the last, <laughs> the last. Yeah, I mean, my motto is you can sleep when you're dead, right? Mm -hmm. So I fully believe now in living 
living deliberately and trying to make the most of literally every moment that I have on this planet. And I've, you know, I do better when I'm, I, I, it, I say busy. I'm not busy to be busy. If these things were not fun, if they did not bring me an immense amount of joy, I would not be doing them. And so my problem is that I get too excited. I get so excited about so many different things um, that I end up, I end up doing the list that you've just talked about. <laughs> well, I can also hear the difference in the tone of your voice when you talk about your time at Intel and when you weren't happy versus what you're doing now and how the tone rises. <laughs> my, my initial thought to that is, do you think you're making up for lost time? I do actually. I do. Um, I th and I think that's okay. Um, you know, I I spent a lot of time achieving. I've 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 seen what that's like. I've had the trophies. I've had my name in the newspaper. I've had my name in the spotlight um, on a national level. And I the interesting thing is, in hindsight, I I never stopped to enjoy any of it. Like, so I give you an example. I mean, it was like, I, I get a scholar, full ride scholarship to Stanford and it's like, that wasn't good enough. I was named Illinois player of the year. It wasn't good enough. Like there was always something more, more, more to do. And that is a really hard way to go through life. Um, and I fortunately, through a series of events, fortunately realized that right around the 2015 timeframe, that that was not sustainable. And so now, I'm definitely trying to grab onto life with both hands and try to enjoy every minute of it. And the funny thing is, is, you know, there's still achievement. I mean, there's still books, there's still workshops, there's still, you know, awards and things like that. And, and they mean something to me. Everything does. But the experience and the journey means far more to me now than it ever did for the first 40 years of my life. And it's a way more fun way to go through life, um, for sure. I mentioned doing the residency three times at Acadia. Yeah. Why, why <laughs> continue going back? They couldn't get rid of me. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, so how the artist in residency in Acadia National Park started was that I got really board photographing icons across the Southwest, which I had been told from a mentor was the way to get published more often. Mm -hmm. That was the way to make money. And so I thought, all right, well, that's what I'm going to do. I left my job. This is, I got to make some money. And so I got really bored with that. And I learned of the artist in residence program and, and, you know, you do your Google search and on the top of the list was this place I'd never heard of, which was Acadia National Park. And I, you know, researched it a little bit. It looked like Oregon, which I loved. I love photographing the coast. And so I applied the first time. And through a series of scheduling conflicts, I ended up there in November of 2009, which people argue like is not a great time to be in Acadia. Mm -hmm. Um I fell absolutely head over heels in love with the place. I mean, just hard. And I decided to apply again so that I could see it at a different time of year, namely in fall. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the kind of peak there, that in summer. And the other thing is, is that when I was there in November, I didn't have the chance to give back to the park. Um, and that's a really big thing in Acadia. You know, the park is created because of donated land through the generosity of a lot of different people. And I didn't feel part of that when I didn't give any public programs. I didn't work with the school kids. I, I basically had three weeks of freedom, like, which was great. I mean, it was blissful, but I felt kind of weird about that, especially in Acadia. And so I ended up applying a second time and getting it. Uh, and I went back in October of 2010. And the funny thing is, is that my whole purpose for really going back was to start, help start the photojournalism program for the Scudic Education Adventure. Um, it's a program for fourth through eighth graders. They learn about art and science and nature in Acadia National Park. And that was just so much fun to see all the kids. And then on the side, I photographed fall colors. And then I thought, well, I want to go back. I, I mean, at this time, I was starting to go back for workshops. I was going back on my own personal time, but I wanted to go back um, 
one more time to see it in a different season. And I ended up being the park's first winter artisan residency, which is somewhat hilarious being from Arizona because I didn't own a coat. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You definitely Uh, need one up there. Yeah, you do in winter when it's minus 26, you betcha. So um, I, you know, I kept going back um, 2013 in my winter artisan residency. I, I again got stuck. I got bored again with Acadia. And I, the thought literally crossed my mind that I had photographed everything there was to Acadia, which is hilariously not right. <laughs> and so I ended up starting um, to research where to get new ideas, how to be more creative, where creativity comes from. And that was really transformational. That changed everything about my photographs. And so I keep going back because I keep learning something new there. I mean, I think I've been there now 454. I, I stopped counting, but it's probably somewhere around 450 days in the last 10 years. I mean, that's, you know, at least two months a year almost. And so... Um, I spent a lot of time there because it's, there's something, there's always something new to discover there. It never looks the same. Um, and I never feel the same there, which is how I try to make my photographs is, you know, my emotional, my emotional connection with the landscape that I see. And that changes constantly, even if I stand in the same place over and over again. How do you manage that relationship? I mean, I, I, I understand the emotional connection to a photograph, but how do you manage the, re- the relationship of constant inner, internal changes and also constant external changes of places that you're going? I, I think the key word there is manage. I don't. Huh. I don't manage uh-huh. it. <laughs> I let it I let it evolve as it evolves and sometimes I'm surprised sometimes you know I, I try to go into things with no expectations um, sort of this the, it's a Zen um, Buddhism sort of philosophy of Mushan where you sort of release all expectations I also go in with Shoshen which is um, going in with a beginner's mind so going in, to a a location as if you've never experienced it before. And you know, that, that can be challenging when you're so familiar with a place like I am with, with Acadia. Um, But there's just, there's just so much to learn. And, you know, going in with Mushan and Shoshan puts you in a more childlike state. And if you think about how exciting the world was when you were a kid, how much of the world there was to discover, um, having that as an adult, holding on to that as an adult, I think actually pushes us into, um, it's it's just a much more meaningful state. It pushes us into, at least for me, a more, a deeper emotional connection with the landscape. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, I, I don't, I kind of let it flow. I don't, I don't really manage it at all. <laughs> Where did you pick up those philosophies? Um, I started learning those after that 2013 moment when I got really stuck. Um, I just started reading different books. I started reading different ideas. I started talking with people about how, how they came at creativity, what their process was. And, you know, it's funny because I grew up not I I didn't think I ever had the capacity to be creative. It it actually never occurred to me. I mean, like I said, I never took any art classes and the ones, you know, that I, I tried were kind of a disaster because I didn't think I was creative. And, you know, if you're problem solving, if you're, you're, you have an open mind, if you're trying to put, you know, new existing ideas together in new ways, everybody has the capacity to be creative. And so, you know, I, I, I really learned that just by reading and, and exploring and, and trying to discover, you know, the world around me as I, as I went since really 2013. Do you know your personality type? <laughs> on which, on which scale? <laughs> on which <I> mean, one? <laughs> any, there are so many, I mean, we'll exclude like the Buzzfeeds, which okay. Harry Potter character are you? Okay. Yeah. I don't, I actually don't know that one. Um, Uh I haven't taken that quiz yet. Uh Um, But on Myers-Briggs, I have been INTJ my entire life. However, Uh the events, the life events of 2015 have really moved me into INTP. So Uh I plan, I was, I was a, a definite planner, spreadsheet, Gantt chart my whole life. And then 2015, I switched to just being a lot more spontaneous. 
What what are you? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what you are in Myers-Briggs? Uh, I don't do Myers-Briggs. I'm a five on the Enneagram. Oh, do you goodness. know the Enneagram? I, you know, I just took this. One of my friends just told me about this the other day, and I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I could probably look it up. I think it's more of a process than a test, really. I mean, because you mentioned it, too. You you moved. You shifted through life events. And mm-hmm. it also, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it also impacts the way you approach creativity. And the, and the reason I asked that question is just because there are so many people who I talk with, you talk with, so many other photographers talk with who are like, I'm just not a creative person. How do I approach a landscape? And I think mm. one of the worst things that we can do is say something like, just let the photograph come to you because they have no idea what we're talking about. Right? Oh yeah. That used to make me insane when Mm, people would say mm -hmm. that. It's like, okay, I'm standing here. Come to me. (laughs) Yes. Right. Oh, muse come to me. Right. How Um, do you help them see? Yeah. So creativity comes from within and creative experts do agree that if you've ever had two thoughts cross your brain ever in your lifetime, they don't even have to be good thoughts, just two thoughts, and you try to put them together in a new and different way, then you have the capacity to be creative. And I, hmm. every single person on this planet has had two thoughts in their lifetime, guarantee it. And so um, what it is, how I teach it is through a concept called conceptual blending. Um, I have a number of different exercises that help people bring out that individuality, bring out the, the existing knowledge, bring out their experiences and try to connect it with the landscape. So conceptual blending is something that occurs subconsciously. It happens when we uh, sleep. It's actually, uh, if you've ever had a weird dream before, that's conceptual blending. And so what I try to do is I try to literally try to teach people how to dream while they're awake. And we can do that. Conceptual blending is just take two different things and putting it together in a new way. So like our iPhones, our mobile devices are, are amazing conceptual blends from a technology perspective. Like the phone existed before, the internet existed before, the calculator existed before, and now it's all in one place. They combined all those things into one product and now we can't live without it. So conceptual blending is not really a photography thing. It just kind of, it's a subconscious process that happens all the time. And so if we recognize that, we can bring that to the forefront of our, of our consciousness by um, relaxing. We have to relax what's called the prefrontal cortex. That's our social filter. That's when we deem ideas stupid and Mm. not worthy of pursuing. And we have to turn that off. It's a lot of negative the voices in our head, really, we have to calm those down. We have to, we have to be more open with that. And that was really hard for me. Um, because I, you know, I didn't think I would have the capacity to be creative. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I'm waiting for the landscape to talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, so what I try to do is I try to, you know, ask people what they're responding to in, in their scene. I mean, is it, Is it the light? Is it the cliffs? Is it the waters? What are they excited about? And then conceptual blending is kind of a cousin of metaphorical association. So I'll ask what else is it? Um, You know, what else does it look like? And that's where you start to get, you start to dive into that raw material that we all have. So, I mean, if you look at a river and you're like, oh, it looks like, oh, I don't know. It looks like a butterfly. The reflection looks like a butterfly. Well, you might look at it and you may say it looks like a dragon or somebody may look at it and say, you know, it looks like a a sailing ship or we all are going to have different answers. And that's where the individuality comes, comes into play. And so I like to think of uh, photographing nature, photographing scenes is sort of a conversation as opposed to waiting for nature to say something to me or me trying to impose something, you know, profound on top of nature, which I think is just a lot of expectations. Right. And so for me, it's kind of a dance um, while I'm out there. It's like, you know, what am I responding to? Well, it could be anything. And I think part of part of making images that you're proud of and part of making images that mean something to you is being confident 
that what you, whatever answer you come up with is a right one. It's a good one and it's worth following. It's worth pursuing. And a lot of people are like, oh, I love that, the, you know, the pattern in the wood. And then they won't photograph it because it's like, oh, well, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to make a good image of it or people aren't going to like it on Facebook or, you know, oh, you know, whatever it is. And so I think being like, no, actually, I totally love this pattern in the wood and I need to make a photograph of it. So I'm like that with bubbles. I love bubbles. <laughs> I love photographing bubbles and I don't care if the world <laughs> thinks it's weird. I don't care. Right. I mean, part of this, part of why we do photography is to, to bring ourselves joy and to find meaning in the world around us. It's not, not to click the shutter. It's not to get frustrated about depth of field again. Right. I mean, we're doing, most of us are trying to do this because we enjoy it. <laughs> Just sometimes doesn't pan out that way for, for a lot of folks. Well, it's, it's fascinating the way you describe it, that relationship, like you call it a dance, turning off those negative thoughts and, and building those relationships. You know, one of the things that I've been reading about a lot is the effects that trauma can have on the brain and how can it actually cause the brain to bypass filters hmm. and immediately kick on fight or flight or sure. stressors or different hormones that are released I I think there's a lot to be said and a lot to be discovered about how we can interact with our own minds in terms of seeing something creatively. Mm, yeah, I'd agree with that. In that thought process, too, um, when I was doing Out of Chicago, one one of the thoughts that came out of it is creative flow induction can you induce that series of events that that just helps you see compositions over and over and then i watched your presentation and you talked about something similar not in those exact words mm. but coming to a point of creative flow and, and how you can achieve that or push yourself to that level um it's a lot to unpack, but, but can you give us like an, a bird's eye view of that? Yeah, hopefully I can simplify it a little bit and it, and it is really simplifying it. Um, but, um, scientist um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, and I don't think I've said his last name right. It's quite complicated. <laughs> mm. um, but he wrote a book about flow. And one of the things that he talks about is this thing, or one of the things that he presents is the experience fluctuation model. And if you can imagine sort of a graph, an XY graph, um, you've got skill level on one side and you've got challenge level on the other. And what he suggests is in order to get in the flow state, you have to have a high skill level at the same time you have a high challenge level. And so there's a whole range of emotions beyond flow, like apathy and boredom and relaxation and anxiety based on where you are in this experience fluctuation model. So for example, if you have really, really low skill level, like say you're starting out as a photographer, you're beginning, you don't have any idea what ISO and depth of field is, but then you try to go out and you try to photograph, you know, the Grand Canyon in stormlight, you know, <laughs> that's a really high challenge. Like that's a, that's hard. And people tend to feel anxious about that um, per his, per Mihaly's experience fluctuation model. And so if you understand that, you can be like, oh, okay, well, I'm feeling anxious. Of course, I'm frustrated. Of course, I'm upset. Of course, I'm freaking out that I can't figure out what to do with my camera, like, because my skill level is low. And so as you increase your skill level, you get more into, you get more into boredom if your challenge level is low, and you get more into relaxation, again, if you keep your your, I wish I had a graph. I'm very visual, so I could draw this for you. Um, but <laughs> if you're following along, just draw triangles. Draw, and... Yeah, draw stuff. Um, but you can get into relaxation if you have high skill level, but low challenge. And so as a photographer, what I'm constantly trying to do is move those, those dials around, right? So I want my skill level to be high, but I want to learn new things. So I'm going to be, I can't, be in flow all the time actually if you're growing as a human being it's it's just not a reasonable state and so 
I, I think just even understanding that um, is very, very helpful. Um, and it being okay that you're experiencing a whole different, you know, whole slew of emotions as you go through your process. But so what I do is, you know, I have my skill level that I'm working on and then I try to push the challenge level and the challenge level for me, a lot of people think of it as going to a new location, changing lenses, photographing in different light, you know, maybe doing night photography. That's not what I'm talking about in terms of challenging. I'm talking about, you know, going on site and, and writing a haiku about how, you know, how to express yourself in a deeper way or, you know, how to pull out deeper meaning and deeper memories and emotions when I'm in any location, in any light, in any, in any situation. And so for me, you know, I, I do like conceptual blending games where you take, you know, nouns and gerunds and put them together and that's sort of fun. Um, but ultimately, you know, my challenge level comes from um, really digging uh, deeper on a, an emotional level, digging deeper inside as opposed to outside. The external world is just our palette. It's it, they're just visual elements that we need to incorporate into our expressions, but we shouldn't be dependent on that. And I see that a lot in nature photography. You know, a lot of it is, is about the light and location and whatnot. But for me, it's definitely not. And so it's that's how I get into my flow, if you will. And that's how I encourage other people to look at it, um, if it's helpful in their process. Do you believe you can induce creative flow? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can get myself into the situation where flow can exist. Does that make sense? Mm, I, yeah. I know how to give it an opportunity. But no, there's plenty of times where I go out into the field. And I'm like, hmm, just, I mean, it's beautiful. Great sunset, beautiful location just not connected. And so, um, I, I, no, I don't think you could force flow. No, I, but I do think you can give yourself the opportunity. You could put yourself in the position to feel flow. I was just wondering, I'm, I've been spitballing with several photographers over the past few days about this concept, um, in terms of how you can go into flow and in songwriting versus photography or, um, sports philosophy or psychology versus what you do with photography. And and I don't know, it, it could be the philosophy of internal motivation versus external reality, um, that, that limits that. Um, oh, sure. I mean, scientists know they've done research studies on on writing writer's block, which is essentially similar to photographer's block. Mm. And let me see if I can remember. It's it's internal, internal negative, like self-talk, like internal criticism will prevent flow, comparing yourself to others, um, not feeling like you have um like you aren't an interesting person, for example, you don't believe in your own story. Um, there's one more and I can't, I can't remember what that is, but it's, there's ways that we prevent it. And a lot of it is what we see in, in things like social media and even our own personal negative self-talk. There's, there's definitive ways where we can, <laughs> we can stop flow for sure. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, and that experience fluctuation model that I talked about earlier, that's just not, that's not photography. That's anything. That's songwriting. That's, you know, making hamburgers. That's, that's anything. <laughs> I mean, that's, it, it applies to anything that you, you know, put any sort of effort into any activity that you invest time in. So. What do you think you do a lot of writing yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? the writing process gives you as a creative outlet or a creative experience that photography doesn't? It certainly expands my voice. Um, There's certainly things I feel much more comfortable saying with my photographs visually than I do with my, my writing um, and vice versa. Um, what I like about writing is that it helps me see very much like, like photography does. It helps me see the world in a different way and it taps into different parts of the creative brain. And so for me, it's a, it's a very valuable part of my creative process. Um, they, they kind of work together. They kind of bounce off each other. Um, 
it just, yeah, they, they sort of go hand in hand. And I, you know, I struggled a lot growing up with my vocabulary. I struggled a lot with communications as an introverted child. And so the photography really gave me a way, a path, if you will, to be like, here, look, you know, this means something to me <laughs> mm-hmm. without having to really put it to words. Um, and, and, you know, now being able to put it, things into words um, a little bit better, both are work in progresses, of course, but putting, putting things down on paper um, really helps me develop, you know, my messages and, and really pulling out some of that inner meaning. The, the other thing that I'll say the writing has done for me, um, which I think is really helpful is that, you know, to try to get past that writer's block or try to get past that blank, that dreaded blank sheet of paper, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you've got this blank sheet and it's like, okay, write a masterpiece, right? Uh, That's way too much pressure. So what I do with writing is I do something called puke it out. So I'll just sit in front of the blank sheet of paper and just type or write. And it doesn't matter what comes out. It's so much easier to to edit than it is to like come up with, you know, like that masterpiece. And I feel like we can use that with photography. And I do this now is sometimes I go out into the field and I'm not sure what I'm responding to. Like I, I don't, I, it's just so overwhelming. Like the Grand Canyon, for example. I mean, I just get so excited and there's so much to see and it's like, Rawr! what do I, where do I even start? And the mm-hmm. great thing about puking it out, this idea of puking it out is I literally can take a picture of anything. And I say take a picture because at this point you're just kind of snapping the shutter. And then I look at the back of my LCD and I was like, okay, what do I like about it? And I keep that or I emphasize that in the next frame. And what don't I like about this? Like what do I, what needs to go? And then I remove it for the next frame. And if you keep doing that over and over again, you'll eventually get there. It may take you a while. So the camera can sort of help become a tool to help you process what's what's happening in your brain in your soul for example um and i think the writing i got that from writing um from trying to start from a blank sheet of paper because that's essentially what we're doing as photographers we have a blank sensor we have a blank we have blank pixels we have blank film (laughs) that's true that's a great way of looking at it and in in terms of writing too let me ask you this in in terms of your guidebooks like Mm telling people where to go, where to find things, um, how to do this, when to see it. How do you approach, like just before we started recording, we talked about crowds in national parks. Mm. How do you write a book like that? And (laughs) you know where this is going. You know where it's going. Yeah. How do you feature places, but also do it in a way that I don't want to say gently educates, maybe pushes somebody to (laughs) understand the the fragility of a place. Yeah. The, the guidebooks was such a, it's such a weird, um, I maybe contradiction maybe because, you know, when I went to a place like Acadia, I loved Acadia so much and I just wanted to share it with everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. So my guidebook was sort of this invitation to come to Acadia, come to Acadia. And people came to Acadia, not necessarily because of my book, but they, people, there was a lot of visitation. Um, On the flip side, I want to protect it and I want to preserve it and I want to, I want to take care of it. And I, I want to, it's, it's, it's my baby, right? Like, so (laughs) um, it's, yeah, I mean, I really struggled with whether or not, you know, publishing a guidebook was the right thing to do. Um, the locations that I feature um, are mostly known-ish. If you've been to the park and you've done some research, there are some off-the-beaten-path locations that I feel are, are worth seeing. If they are fragile um, in any way, you know, like the top of Cadillac Mountain, for example, super mm-hmm. populated super fragile ecosystem, you know, trying to educate people on leave no trace, you know, not not trampling the vegetation. And I think, you know, when I write the guidebook, we make the assumption that the people who are going to read it and go to Acadia are going to be responsible stewards of the land. And that's what I hope for. And if they, and if they are responsible users of the land um, and they take care of it, like, it's fine. The, the problem is, is when we, we get into situations, you know, like we just saw the other day um, with, with Utah and the vandalism of, mm-hmm. you know, a, a 
precious prehistoric um, site or historic site and you know vandalism trash like people aren't taking care of it and it it breaks my heart um i would like to believe that the people reading my guidebooks aren't doing that <laughs> but um but you know we have leave no trace we have the nature's first uh initiative trying to educate and if people are going to go to acadia and they're going to pick up my book they're they're going to get educated on you know how to how to be stewards of the land and understand that this is precious not just to me but to a lot of people and to them and future generations um it's yeah it's it's it was I, I hope that it, it educates and I hope it inspires people to take care of a place like Acadia, not just Acadia, but any, anywhere um, people go. On your about me page on your website, you write, I believe learning never ends. Um, mm. Just that snippet. What are you learning about yourself personally through your photography right now? Oh, I'm learning all about rivers um <laughs> specifically specifically the uh, colorado river watershed um i yeah i'm in love with the river i love stand-up paddleboarding and so my a lot of my work is starting to center around water management issues in the west which is a big deal um you know it's been in the news recently that we're we're in you know an extended drought um we have we have diminishing supply for increasing returns or increasing demand. And so um, I'm starting to learn a lot more about that. And obviously my camera comes with me to tell the stories, but, you know, I was just, um, uh, I think you mentioned it earlier. I did this, you know, 47 mile stand up solo, solo stand up paddleboard through meander um, to learn more about that stretch of the Colorado river. I was just rafting in cataract Canyon, which is the stretch below um, meander after it merges with the Green River. And I actually just finished my guide training trip <laughs> on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, where I learned a tremendous amount, not just about guiding and customer service, but about the canyon. Um, I saw 91 new miles, or 90, I think it was 91, it might be 93 new miles um, that I'd never seen before. And so um, my camera right now and my writing, my books um, specifically, are taking me. Um, to the Colorado River watershed. Do you, in terms of of activities like that, do you view yourself as kind of like a pioneer in photography? No, no, not at all. No, Why not? I'm, oh, there are so many who have come before us, um, and they have done remarkable things. In fact, they they have opened the door um, for us, for me, to do things like this, um, particularly women in photography and women in the outdoors. Um, no, I feel like I'm, I'm paving my own path, but I'm certainly not, not going to consider myself a pioneer here. No. Mm -mm. Who are some of those that have inspired you in that way? Oh goodness. Well, I mean, it's been both male and female. So, I mean, my first major, you know, outdoor photography inspiration was Galen Rowell. Mm. Um, I mean, what he was doing, running around all these different places and climbing stuff and <laughs> running across fields to chase rainbows was just all so great. But then, you know, I mean, there's been people like Dorothea Lang and I mean, even more unknowns like Charlotte Hall, who, you know, she she was um, a female photographer in Arizona and she helped make a lot of images around the Arizona Strip, the section north of the Grand Canyon, north of the Colorado River, which state ended up staying in Arizona just because of her, uh, her, uh, well, not just because of her, but a lot in part because of the photographs that she made of that area. Um, I mean, Annie Griffiths, um, you know, with National Geographic has been inspirational. There's, yeah, there's just, you know, Ansel Adams, Stieglitz, I, yeah, there's, it's a long list. It's a, it's sort of an exhaustive list of people who have, have really, I think, opened, opened all of the opportunities that we have today up for us. How does it make you feel when people put you on, on their list? Oh, I mean, it's obviously remarkable. I, I mean, that's what I, I mean, I, I hope to inspire people to get outside. I hope people, I hope to inspire, you know, people to live their most meaningful life, whatever that that is. And so, you know, that's that's an honor. Um, it's a privilege. 
um, it's very exciting and I'm very grateful for it. Um, and, you know, I gain inspiration from, from anyone and everyone as well. So I feel like we all have, you know, something to share in this life. We're all different. We, we have some similarities, which, you know, we can, we can connect with, but everybody has something of value to share in this world, I believe. And so that's where the learning for me comes in as I, I feel like I have something to learn from everybody. What do you have coming up and where can people go to find you? Yeah, well, so I'm starting, I'm restarting my in-person um, field-based workshops this May, and I'm starting with Oregon. Um, I'm doing a number of geography, my all-women's photography workshops, uh, starting in May and throughout the rest of the year. Um, I'm I'm in the middle of printing two books, which is kind of chaotic. So the <laughs> Photographing Acadia a second edition is coming out at the end of June. And I just put my exhibition catalog for an exhibit that I'm a part of um, called The Current Flows, uh, Water in the Arid West, uh, to print yesterday. So very exciting times. Um, that exhibit is being curated by Jean Falk Adams, and she is the daughter-in-law of Ansel Adams. So that's, that will start, that exhibit opens on June 4th and goes through January of next year. So super excited about that. Um, oh boy, there's so many other things going on. I, I'm working with Guides Hall on his new book, Another Day Not Wasted. I'm going to publish that uh, for him soon, hopefully this summer. I've got Dear Bubbles book. I've got my memoir I'm working on. Goodness, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so lots of lots of fun things coming up. You can learn all about it um, on my website at Um If you have trouble spelling my last name, just think it's Mini United Kingdom or Mini UK. Um, so that's how you can you can find me. And of course, I'm on Facebook and Instagram um, as well. So I would love to connect. Well, she's Colleen Minnick. Thank you, Colleen, for so much for talking about philosophies and photography with us. Yeah, thanks so much, David. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode. This episode is actually continuing over on Patreon with some exclusive audio for the patron supporters of the Landscape Photography Show. If you want to sign up and become a patron of the Landscape Photography Show, help keep it going week after week and also support the work that's gone into it, you can go to patreon.com slash david johnston and sign up for specific tiers that fit your budget for monthly support with support you're going to get access to exclusive audio like the access to the exclusive audio for this episode as well as future episodes and past episodes exclusive webinars and also benefits that go with each tier like meetings with me photo critiques, and also even prints with specific tiers. So again, you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up to be a patron of the Landscape Photography Show.